Jimmy, giving me I'm sweating. Rachel, welcome to the show. Hi, Jimmy. You didn't even you? know we were going to be recording right now. No, you're giving me like a shit ton of stress at this moment. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, sh I didn't mean to like pod surprise you. I've never done a pod surprise before. This is a pod surprise. It's All right. Like so let's keep this simple. Okay. You, you have a podcast. What's I it do. called? What's it about? My podcast name is Talking All Things Cardiopalm. You can find it on Apple. Um, what's the other one? What's the other Everywhere. Spotify? Spotify. All, We're going to put all it everywhere. The things. All the um, things. It's about Cardiopalm. And so my goal is to basically bring Cardiopalm to the forefront, whether that's like from a diagnosis perspective or how you treat these patients or just like bringing it into different settings because people are stuck with Cardiopalm just in acute care and we're not taking vitals in outpatients. So like just putting it at the front of conversation is the goal. That's why, that's why that show exists. It's why you exist. You threw a stat at me like five minutes ago. How many cardiopulmonary specialists are there? About like 470. Cause it's new, take. right? That certification is pretty no. Like, no, this is the oldest certification. So it was created in like 1985 is like the really APTA certification. And is still one of the smallest. And I it's know, one of the right? smallest. So that's <laughs> like, Rachel's like, I am out here to take people who want to like treat these types of, of patients. And I want like better therapists. Absolutely. And like to use your skill, use your whole knowledge, use your license, use good assessment skills so that you can put good intervention to use and actually get the best outcomes for your patients. And, you know, hearts and lungs, they're kind of important. In yeah, people. like everyone has them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think my professor was like, okay, so your every patient you treat will have a heart, at least one lung and focus on that and a brain. And I'm like, okay, all right, you know, work, work with that. Right. I mean, right. it's it's a quintessential statement, but it's true, right? Even if you want to work with your top athletes, if you're not yes. in a good cardiopalm condition, then you're not going to get the most out of your patient or client. Yeah. All right. So you are one of a handful of other podcasters that we're sort of like bringing on and creating. I mean, we're just winging this sort of thing, creating a network. We're like, where you're going to, we're going to share one episode a month from your show, which exists separately. We want to make sure if people like what they hear with the episode that you share with me, Hey, this is where Rachel's show is. Go get it. Listen, download, binge, whatever. Um, who are you talking to in the episode? Who is this person? And like, why should people be fired up about listening? To this? So first episode is going to be with Tina Field. She's a PT from University of Michigan. She was actually one of my mentors when I was in Michigan for my residency. She was not my residency mentor, but one of my mentors. Um, and she's just an awesome supervisor who has created great culture in PT in her department and in the hospital and just really promotes being working at the top of your license. And I, I really, truly appreciate it. This is why a podcast like yours needs to happen is because like she's in Michigan, right? Yep. And how many people is she going to interact or talk with? Like hopefully a lot, but this just exposes a few of her ideas to more people. And 100%. then you put that idea in someone's brain and they use it and maybe they spread it. And that person, you know, it's just, it's just a multiplier, multiplier effect. So, Correct. so uh, I'm excited for this. I'm excited to have you on the network, right? We should all get t-shirts. We, we should get t-shirts or something. We'll we get totally that made, should. right? We'll get network t-shirts. But I'm excited for the audience to meet you. And I wanted to like be here when they met you for the first time. So they weren't like, who the heck's this girl? Why is I thought this was Jimmy's show, whatever. It is, but my it's a network, but this is what you get to to hear with uh with Rachel. So uh I'm pumped. Are you pumped? I'm pumped. I'm totally right. pumped. I'm here for well, it. Well then let's sh let's shut up and let's start the episode. All right, sounds good. Let's get in. Hello, hello, and welcome to Talking All Things Cardiopalm. I am your host, 
Dr. Rachel Barisi, and this is the first episode on the PT Pinecast Network, and I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much, Jimmy, for this invitation to be a part of your network and bring Cardio Palm to the forefront of conversation. I'm bringing this first episode to you because it is a banger of an episode. I have Tina Fields from the University of Michigan or Michigan Medicine Health. We talk about that name change halfway through, but we dive in to all things cardiopalm, hitting everything from culture to competencies to residencies to LVADs and total artificial hearts, and really what it means to practice at the top of your license. Both myself and Tina feel very strongly about this, empowering your therapists, your students, your colleagues to practice at the top of their license and to spread our knowledge and our abilities across the country. So I won't waste any more time. I am so excited to introduce Tina Fields. I am super excited to be part of the PT Pinecast Network. So let's do this thing and let's get after it. Today we have with us Tina Fields. Tina Fields, how are you today? I am fantastic. It's so great to be here. It's so great. Um, Tina was one of my mentors in Michigan. Um, She's from... University of Michigan, which we now go by Michigan of Medicine. Do, do the name for me. I believe that we are now um, Michigan Medicine Health, but okay. no system on the end of that. And you can add University of Michigan to the front if you would like. So. <laughs> it, it's always going to be U of M to me. So it's going to yeah. be a little hard. To, it's been hard to change that name. Yeah. All right. Before we dive in, this idea is that we have craft brews and cardio palm or cocktails and cardio palm. So what are you drinking today, Tina Fields? I am drinking a mimosa, even though it is uh, 5 p.m. at this time. <laughs> I it's don't think you like the move, light just... and fruity, and I can't get in too much trouble on this show with you. <laughs> I love I love that. There's never a bad time for a mimosa, though. No, right. I would totally agree. Most important question of the night, what juice do you have in your mimosa? You know what? All I had was orange juice in the house, but I recently tried one at a baby shower with mango juice. And that I would highly recommend for anyone who has not had that before. Okay. I like that. You know, I never liked mango. Every time I try mango, I'm like, uh, mm-hmm. it's not ever what I want. And mm-hmm. then recently I had a fantastic mango and I'm like, oh, I could do any variety with this. Now it's on the list. It's back okay. on the list. Perfect. All right. So last question, champagne or Prosecco? Champagne. Champagne for sure. Yep. All right. All right, Tina, tell us a little bit about you. Tell us about your time at U of M and then we'll kind of go from there. Okay. So yeah, I started at Michigan in the summer of 2004 and I came just looking for a global experience in the acute care setting. I had three years experience before that. um, And I had forced my first job to kind of start a rotational system there because I wanted to see all the things. Um, But Michigan was a much larger institution and with a lot more opportunities for mentoring, which is what I was looking for. Um, I worked there, we had a single team of everybody. So I got to rotate everywhere. And then we got too big and split into two teams and I had to choose and I chose cardio palm and I've been on the cards team ever since. Um, Can I ask a follow-up question? Yes, absolutely. How how big was your first team? So there was 24 PTs when I started there total for the hospital. Pretty big unit. 
Yeah. Well, now I supervise 25. So, okay. and I'm just one acute care supervisor. Jill has quite a few more than me. Um, we're still the smaller team, but okay. we have probably tripled in size since I've been there in the past 18 years. Wow. That's a long time to be at one place too. Yeah, it is. It is. I'm very blessed. If that doesn't come across clear in this whole conversation, I'm very blessed. I know um, you are. It's a wonderful yeah, place to work. It really is. Yeah. So tell me what has kept you there for 18 years? Because that's a long time. It is a long time. Well, I'm very spoiled. That's basically <laughs> why I think, um, you know, I've, there are opportunities at Michigan to do all the things that I think as a PT, if you really want to do research, you can do research. If you really want to learn all the things, you can learn all the things. Um, we have a residency program now. So, you know, if you have your specialization, you can be a mentor to other people in the field. And all of those things have always really spoken to me. Honestly, when I started Michigan, I had no idea I loved cardiopoem. So who knew? But um, I do. And it has allowed me to grow in so many ways. Um, and it's given me all sort of opportunities. I also didn't know that I kind of wanted to be in charge of anything, but then I'm not sure what happened along the way. But next thing you know, you have a residency. And next thing you know, you have a team of like really highly qualified, competent, caring human beings that work for you. And why would you leave? That would be insane. I've literally never, ever been bored there. Um, there's always something that you've never heard of before or an opportunity to participate in something that you didn't ever foresee happening. So, I mean, I don't know. It, it's so much more than just a job. That's awesome. I think there's just so much growth available there. And I have some follow-up questions from some of those things that you yeah. said. So first of all, Cardiopalm seems to sneak up on people, right? I think so too. Yes. <laughs> Like, I, oh my God, I really like this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I am not sure why when, when we had the split teams, I had to figure out, did I love, cause I did love trauma burn and kind of putting all the pieces together in the way that trauma cases make you do. Um, but I did feel at that point I was what, uh, seven years into my career. And I felt like the place where I had the most growth in front of me instead of behind me was in cardiopulm. And so I like I chose that and I have really never looked back. Um, but I definitely have hired multiple people who, upon coming to the institution, would not say, oh, I love cardiopalm, who are with me or have their specialization now or who have fallen in love with it along the way. And I do think it's a growing patient population and there's so much need for people who understand cardiopalm. A hundred percent. And I, honestly, 13 years ago, you could not have paid me to right. to. to Yes, where I'm at right now and that this is my, these are my people right. Right. where I get the most joy, the most satisfaction with seeing recovery and improvement mm -hmm. and yep. just the, the pathophys behind it. Like I get excited yep. about it. Yes. Right. And it's not for everybody. And it's, no, fun. it's I tell people, you know what, if it's not for you, I, I will still love you anyways. And, and that won't hold anything against you, but there is a person for which this is like, this is the pathway and it's right. finding those people to, to, be on your team. And that's what makes us successful, I think. Okay. So that leads me right into the second question that I had building, which is leadership. So you talked about being a supervisory role, actually really enjoying being a leader. First of all, talk a little bit about that development, like taking over a team, running a group of 25 people and it, and the culture is just so good at 
U of M. Yeah. So like, tell me about you kind of growing into that position. And then we'll talk a little bit about culture and how you've achieved what you've achieved. Yeah. It's funny. Cause again, I would not have said I wanted to be in charge of anything. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. That's again, if you look back, I would not have said that, but coming to Michigan, falling in love with cardiopalm, I, I moved into what Michigan calls a clinical specialist role on the team. And all that means is that when people would move into cardiovascular and pulmonary services, I would do, I would train them. Um, I think part of why I fell in love with it was my training. So our supervisor at the time had Eisenmiger syndrome. And she, when she taught me, I was just looking at my notes the other day from our orientation. I have a full like yellow pad that you flip through (laughs) that she just off the cuff told me that I had like never thought about before. Um, And just like the level of things that she knew about those patients. I think that's when it really started. And I really started falling in love with it because I was still like rotating through all the services at that time. Um, But the ability to share that with others, watching other people fall in love with it, watching the impact that you can make if you find the right patient at the right time, um, help them understand their disease process, help them understand how to live their best life while they're going through what they're going through. I mean, there's just so many layers to it. So I did that training for seven years. And along the way, I had, I think, three different times when my supervisor was off for one reason or another um, that I was in charge for three or four months. And that was stressful. (laughs) And that was hard because I mostly had no idea what I was doing. I was partnered. It would be me and the other clinical specialists doing it together, kind of breaking up the tasks, trying to figure out how to get through. But um, you get a little sense of your ability to impact the world. And I feel like as a clinician, I, well, I'm very biased. And I think everybody who's in a leadership role should be a clinician first. They should understand the workflow. They should understand what their people are going through. And then you can advocate for them. And then you can help to create the world that allows us to flourish and practice at the top of our license. And that I think has led me to eventually applying to be in charge. Um, I felt like I had a lot of things that I wanted to change and I felt like that was the way I was going to be able to do it. So I needed to apply. I needed to put myself out there. And is it always easy? No, no, it is not always easy. Um, But am I, again, you know, I'm blessed that people I work with work hard, you know, they're knowledgeable. There's what, eight other cardiopulmonary specialists. You guys are packing with the CCSs at your We're we're trying to get to double digits. (laughs) You're running deep. Sometime soon. Then I told everyone at that point I'm retiring, but I don't know. I hope we get there before I have to retire. I think think you got uh, some time still, Tina. Yeah, I do. I have like a few years. Um, But I just felt like I could, I could impact the world in a way that I couldn't do from, from the clinician role if I stepped up, because what I want from a leader, I was like pretty clear on. And I felt like I could be that person for other people. I love that. Okay. So I think you hit the nail on the head with that, right? Like you have to, I, I agree with you. I'm 100% in the same boat. I think to be a great leader, you have to be a great clinician and have gone through all the things. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's a little harder to be a good leader steering the ship when you didn't have boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a big institution. Yeah. 
And I can imagine making change and, and pushing for what you feel is top of scope of practice and creating culture can be challenging. So let's start with the department first, because I think it always starts at that level. Mm-hmm. How have you created such good culture in the PT department? Because I, I mean, I work there. Mm-hmm. You can feel it. It's, mm-hmm. it's a I team. Don't. It feels like yeah. a team. Yeah. I think, well, part of it is I, I hope that my team feels like I genuinely care about their well-being. I mean, if, you know, we went through COVID together, we've been through some things together now, right? But even before that, I felt like I wanted to create a space where I would have wanted to work as a clinician, right? So I think it's my job is like kind of keep them informed, allow them to participate in as many of the decisions as possible. When I can't change something, explain to them why, what what happened? Why was this decision made? And like, also, why can I not change the outcome? Right. Um, or if I think that we can change the outcome, but we just need to like kind of play along for a little while to like put our ducks in a row, make sure that kind of we all feel like, hey, as a team, we're moving in this direction. Um, and then also protect them from like dumb stuff that they don't need to worry about. Like if someone's raging about productivity, I don't care. And I know I shouldn't say that out loud, but it has never ever reflected what we bring to the table. And so if people want to yell about it, okay. Like, and I can take that all in and I can come back and say, Hey, like, are there inefficiencies in the system that are impacting you from like being able to do your job? And that seems like my job. But I'm not going to come at you with like, hey, your productivity when you were in this very complex ICU with very medically unstable patients wasn't super high. I don't care about that. Like, is there a standard for the whole team as a whole? Is there an average that we all basically hit? Yes. If you're like four standard deviations away from that, will I talk to you potentially? But I'm always going to come at it from a quality of care perspective and from inefficiencies in the system perspective and from a supporting them perspective. Um, And I think as long as everybody feels like they're part of the family, I don't know. I mean, if if someone comes along that doesn't fit into the mold really, or like isn't really invested in stuff, I don't always feel like it's my job to like point that out to them. I feel like they get a sense of that from everybody else that they're working with. Like, Hey, this isn't really working out because they're not fitting into what is our culture, which is that come hell or high water. If somebody needs help, we're going to go help you. Right. We're a team and we're in this together. And and if you're not that person, then you're not going to feel, you're not going to feel like you have your place there. And then that's, that just is what it is. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it totally does. And I think that's contagious, right? Like being a part of a team and having a team that has your back or helps you out or helps pick up the slack or whatever, like yeah. that's contagious because the opposite is also contagious. Yes. And it doesn't take much to go the other direction. So we have a very good idea that I cannot take credit for it, but a staff <laughs> person came up with probably, she's been long gone, six, seven years probably, but we have a cards team appreciation board in the main office. And like, if someone does something dumb for you, like, Hey, I forgot my water bottle on the floor and I don't want to walk a thousand miles Two back towers over, over. <laughs> yeah. and bring it back. And someone grabs it for you, even without you even asking and says, Hey, I brought this for you. 
just acknowledge that they did something for you. Totally. And and I told them like, I'm not there. I don't know what you guys are doing for each other all the time to like be supportive and be a team, but like, let's make sure that we recognize that for other people. And so I just type them up at the end of the month, every month and draw one out of a hat as like, oh, let, let's acknowledge this one thing of all these things that are written, but I type them all up at the bottom of our meeting minutes and make okay. sure they're included on their performance evals. And I make sure that like, I don't know that we take those moments to just like, Hey, thanks for that. Like that is important. I think um, it is important, right? Like to actually acknowledge the things that are happening around you and that it's not being overlooked because recognizing yeah. little things ends up going a long way in the, in the yeah. long run. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, it's just one example, but it is a thing yeah. I think that speaks to the fact that they will write little notes. Like, I don't even know, like just the silliest stuff, but it's like, hey, I did appreciate that. Like, and Absolutely. I remembered it long enough to walk the two towers back over here, find a little piece of paper and acknowledge that for the person. So 100%. those are the moments that I like, right? That make yeah. me happy. And it also brings a team together, which I think shows you the culture that already exists. Okay, so you mentioned before you have some very strong opinions about what a leader looks like. And I think you pretty much already answered that question. But is there anything else that maybe you haven't said yet that you think really brings forward a strong leader that will be able to carry a team like this? Yeah, I well, I, I probably have a lot of thoughts. I think, I think, there's the basic thing that I said before, which is being the supervisor as a clinician, you always wanted like someone who, you know, if someone's going to call and complain about our services, for instance, then I'm going to stop and be like, Hey, I don't know what happened, but also I'm going to just check in and then I'll get back to you and make sure that I support them because I know hundred percent of the time they're doing what they believe is the right thing for the patient. And I should be behind that as well. So I'm never going to sell them out over something like that too. I think I try to empower people. So I can't do all the things I'm supposed to be doing on any given day anyways, but also like giving people opportunities to demonstrate all the things they bring to the team. So if there's a project of, Hey, does anyone want to do this? And if, if you've been there six months and you feel like that's for you, like come along and let's like figure out how to involve you in the things that are happening on this team. Right. Um, you know, I obviously I'm super blessed and I have people with all sorts of talents, but I also have like intentionally tried to hire people who have like a little bit different of a background or come from a different setting and then highlight the expertise that they bring so that they do feel like people will come to them as an expert in that area. So for example, like one of my more recent hires um, was in outpatient neuro for I don't know how many for multiple years um, and wasn't from an acute care background, but she knows about vestibular rehab. So like, hey, can you do a presentation about that to the team? Because then they'll know if they have a patient, they don't know what to do. Like you would be the person to reach out to. You don't have to have worked here for 15 years to have some part of this thing that you can own and can be yours. Um so that you feel like you're contributing, right? So I try to find that thing for all of the people on my team. You know, you need the people that just want to come to work and see patients and don't want to do the things and go home. And you need to celebrate those people as well, right? Because right. it, you know, if everyone wants to do a project for six out of their eight hours every day, that also doesn't work. Right. But I do try 
to look at the schedule and find some time for people um, if I have a project that I need them to work on or there's something that I want them to do to say, hey, let's acknowledge you for this thing. Let's try to figure out how to communicate it to the team as a whole. And let's try to give you some resources to be able to put behind that so that you, so that that's possible for you. And then from that point on, you're going to be recognized for that skill, right? right. And and yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I lose control of things a lot. We have meetings <laughs> and the whole meeting goes off the rails and I'm just like, okay, well, whatever. But I think what I realized during COVID when all of our meetings were online, um, you know, we don't see each other on the floor, right? Mm -hmm. We're here and then the other person is next, you know, 16 beds that way. You're not going to run into them all the time is that our team meetings are like a really important space for us to stop maybe talk some baloney with everybody else in the room, make some jokes. So I try not to stress about people, you know, coming in whenever they can get there. Um, start a little bit late because we're acute care and that's fine. Yep. Um, God knows starting at exactly on time at any time in the acute care happened. setting is like a joke. Yeah. Um, and, it's got to be like a 15 yeah. minute window this way. Yeah, so plus or minus. Like if you're going to miss the whole thing, like maybe just send me a message and be like, <laughs> yes, I got stuck here. And like, is there anything I need to know? And then you could like pop over or whatever. Right. Um, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, I guess I, I want, I want to stop you there. Cause yeah. I mean, I heard some really big things. And the one thing okay. that I really heard was that you pull out people's strengths and maximize it. And not everyone has the same strengths. But right. then people learn from each other mm -hmm. and also have a go-to person. Mm -hmm. So I think that's like a, a key thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like being able to pull out strengths of someone instead of forcing strengths on somebody. Because yeah. everyone kind of right. carries things differently. Right. Yeah. And I think that's true, right? I mean, there are people who are like, hey, I know this thing. And I'm like, do you want to do that? No. Okay. Like, Again, it's okay. you know, right. this is not a voluntold situation. This is a volunteering situation. If you want to do something, if you're not, I can look for other people. If we think that's something as a group of humans, we want to like work on. Um, I love, I love the voluntold. There's a lot of yeah. voluntolding that does happen. And just that is a real system. thing. That is, is a real thing. thing. Yeah. I don't and know if it's made its way into the dictionary yet, but I think it should. <laughs> it should. It should. If not, the dictionary people have not been in a healthcare system. That's <laughs> but yeah, um, we do we do a lot of education stuff just because I yes, feel like do. it makes us all stronger. Um, yeah, I don't know. I was just looking, I think, like in the month of April, it's like RT is coming to do an in-service. And my team's been trying to get better about like spinal cord injury stuff. So we've had like kind of ongoing little chunks of stuff about spinal cord injury. So we have that. We have an outcome measure we want to talk about. Um, we have a student, so there's an in-service and there's like four weeks in April. So that means every single meeting, we're going to have something exactly. that someone's going to present. That's going to be like, Hey, maybe this is something we should think about. I don't know. So I try to mix it up. So it's not all me just being like, okay, people, here's what I need you to do. Like all meeting long. And I think oh. that allows for growth and keeps people thinking about what they're doing next and being in their scope of practice and maybe even jumping outside of what they normally do, keeping yeah. them kind of in that loop. There's something different. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So I was going to keep going the culture route, but I feel like mm -hmm. we're running into the education route. Okay. So sorry. I want to come, I want to come back. No, apologies. We got to, got to go where the conversation takes us. <laughs> it's a little um, bit flat. 
So there's okay. so much education that happens at U of M. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I loved about working there was the competency, I don't even know what you want to call it, competency, competency situation where <laughs> if you're rotating to a new <laughs> floor, there's a situation. Uh, yeah. You're rotating to a new floor. If you're working with LVADs, if you're on the heart transplant floor, like you're not going to that floor until you are ready and have cleared mm -hmm. all of it, right? Or telly, yeah. right? Like if you're on a telly floor that you can appropriately read mm -hmm. EKGs. Oh, and I will say being in multiple hospital systems at this point that the competencies at U of M are thorough. So I mean, tell me yeah. a little bit about that because I think it's important. Yeah. Like I really, in my whole heart, love what you've done with competencies. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is definitely something that Peggy started and that was a supervisor long before me. Um, and she was definitely militant about them. I think that over the years, we've kind of taken that model and just applied it. It's, it's complicating, but I do believe that there is a set of skills that you should own before you are left alone in a patient population, because PT school, it's going to tell you a lot of things, but it's at least in, for an academic medical center where 50% of the patients come as a second opinion from somewhere else, some other institution mm -hmm. is not going to get you through the day. So we do, we have a set of things. Um, when you rotate to an area, we pair you up with a clinical specialist and we train and we say, hey, at Michigan, here is best practice as we understand it. So here's like a framework within which you want to practice. And then, you know, do you in the framework, but be aware of the framework. Um, because I, I think it's twofold, right? We don't want to hurt patients, but I also don't want to put my therapist into a situation where they don't have the knowledge to understand what they're reading or apply the knowledge that they should be gaining from what they're reading to their plans that they have for the patient session. I mean, patients are unprecedentedly ill at this moment in time. I want us to be able to be comfortable. I want us to be self-directed. I want us to be in charge of the situation we're in. And I definitely always tell them you should know the moment at which you need to leave. Like maybe that's the most important part of the whole thing is know when you should be there, know how aggressive to be while you're there, but also know the set of circumstances where the risk of what you're doing outweighs the benefit of what you're doing. And, and without all the knowledge in the middle, I don't know how you make those decisions about the benefits of PT in this moment in time versus the risks of PT at this moment in time. And if you don't know the difference, you just do things you shouldn't be there. So, um, yes, we have a competency <laughs> for pretty much everything. Um, Love it. Yes, we do. And I, um, you know, we, we update them regularly when things change on a floor or a new mm -hmm. procedure starts on a floor or a new anything happens on a floor. Um, but there's a standard at which you must meet to be left alone there. And that, yes, I do make sure that they are all independently able to read telemetry. We do like every six months, I just bring a 10 strip so yes. quiz to a meeting and we all fill it out. And then it's a good chance if people are a little bit rusty on anything, I bring them to the office, we chat it out. It's not about punishment. It's about ability to real time read telly so you can make intelligent decisions when you're with the patients. You cannot call yourself the cards team and not be able to read telly. I very, very strongly believe that to be true. Uh, let's stop for one moment.
Do you feel telemetry and being able to read telemetry as a physical therapist in an acute care setting is important, Tina Fields? Yes. And oh, yes. Yes. I know. I mean, previously, like we got new monitors. It's not as bad as it used to be. But previously, the part you could see live was potentially like an inch and a half. <laughs> yeah. If you don't know how to read tele, you are going to have zero idea what's happening in that inch and a half on the wall until the monitor goes in the hall and potentially some pager goes off somewhere else. And then someone decides to walk over and like be, hey, what are you doing in there? unacceptable situation. No. And you should be able to pull back before we get to that point, because usually there's some sort of warning. Yes. Yeah. Usually for sure. Absolutely. So yeah, we teach them that. Um, We have a, uh, I guess it's cornerstone now, but we have an online module about tele that we have in past just to talk about kind of implications of different rhythms on cardiac output and how that might impact physical therapy. And then we do just like ongoing training just to help them kind of understand that. And again, I don't know, it has been said that we do a a lot of that kind of stuff, but I also have a lot of clinicians who can handle a lot of situations and are not looking for feedback from somebody else about what they're doing. They might be looking, they might have a question about the patient's medical status, but that to me is much different. Right. It's a different question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about LVADs. Oh, yeah. So I love, 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 love. Actually, one of the reasons why I decided to do PRN at U of M uh-huh. while I was at the VA was to be with this higher level population. Yeah. So mm-hmm. LVADs are very specific. There are different types mm-hmm. and your competencies are pretty, again, thorough. <laughs> I'm going to just <laughs> use that word. Well, so. We, yeah, go, go ahead. Finish the questions. The only, the only piece I want to kind of throw in here is that you would not, how would you describe your therapist's role with patients with LVADs? I mean, like how much hands-on training do they get? Like, what do they know how to do? And just like maybe go down that route a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're blessed because we have this perfusionist named Kevin, who is like kind of part of Kevin's still there. Kevin is still there. Oh man, he was good. I liked him. He somehow, he is a perfusionist, but he ended up in charge of all the nursing training and all of the training training that they did for people to manage the patients when they came out of the operating room. He also, more than anyone I've ever met, can kind of like look at you and be like, you're a physical therapist. You might care about X, Y, and Z. Like he was kind of able to put himself in our shoes to help us understand what with this specific device might we actually care about. Um, But we both OT and PT at Michigan are super involved with the LVAD patients. Um, You know, the OTs have a whole situation. Um, They go um, take them into the community, kind of go over all the home reentry situations with them. But physical therapy from day one in the ICU, you are responsible for participating and training the patients about the device itself, about when, you know, they switch to batteries, start having the patients participate as much as they can, set up all the equipment for them so they're mobile, and then kind of help them understand how to manage it. So for instance, you know, batteries last a very long time now, but we have them continue to use a pair and kind of run them all the way down until they get an alarm so that And if that happens during your therapy session, then it would be up to you to educate the patient about what is happening right now, why is it important, and the fact that we have this backup equipment with us is going to now allow us to sit down and 
you know, switch the batteries out. So we have old ones. We need new ones. That's what this alarm is telling you on your device right now. Um, and so what I like to, I mean, so yes, yeah, so we do a lot of training. Um, we have, uh, you know, again, we have sat Kevin down and he has helped us like with videos to kind of understand the entirety about like physiology of like how the heart works with the mechanical circulatory support and kind of how the whole thing fits together, where it's attached, what a blood pressure increase might mean for this particular site, you know, centrifugal LVAD versus not axial flow, whatever. Um, and so I think understanding that stuff, again, if you're going to take the patient somewhere and you're going to exercise with the patient, you might want to know if you're in a situation that could potentially become dangerous or maybe have the patient like, you know, have some sort of arrhythmia because a suction event is potentially happening. So um, we have equipment that they've given us over the years and we have them complete all the knowledge, understand the alarms, do an alarm check off, and then actually do hands-on emergency procedures. So if they were with a patient off the floor or something and they needed to do emergency procedures that they have the knowledge and they've practiced it regularly so that they could be able to do those emergency procedures before other people arrive to help in that situation. Um, we're pretty involved. And that's a, and that's a stressful situation, yeah. right? So you you put your therapist in that stress yes. to learn how to do it because just the alarm itself, the siren going off could yes. be nerve wracking, right? Yeah. So if that happened the first time you're with a patient, yeah, it sort of takes some of that fear and anxiety out because now you could put your skills. That's the idea, use. right? Is yeah. If something completely off the rails happens, if you're still chatting with your patient, keep chatting with your patient. But if your patient's not chatting with you anymore, there is a set of steps you should be going through at that matter. And at that moment in time, that could potentially save your patient's life. So yes, please know those things. Please practice those things so they become very second nature. Joint Commission says you got to do that stuff once a year. The team, my team voted every six months. That was not a me yeah. thing. That was a them thing. But that was really because they rotate between surface surf service areas and they're not always with patients with LVADs, right? So right. keep doing You don't want to be fresh when it happens. Yeah. Right. You don't want to be like, wow, I wonder what Tina said 11 months ago. <laughs> oh, what Whoa. was that thing? What does this right. sound to me? What do I do next? What is not where you should What be. was I supposed to have with me when we made yes. it a thousand feet from our right. room? So Tina Fields, what should you have with yeah. you at all times while you're ambulating a patient in the hallway away from your room or just outside of your room. Yeah, I, we, we have them take an entire backup set. So you need a controller and clips and batteries with you. Um, and no matter if you, I don't care if you check the batteries and they're fully charged and they're primary one, I'm saying to you, you need to get a bag to put the controller, the clips and the batteries in the bag and the bag needs to be with you wherever you went because you don't have a long time before it's going to clot and it's going to shut off. And then turning it back on is going to be more of a problem and less of a health, right? So so that was it, my follow-up question for you. Slow down. Yeah. So I'm going to slow down because not everyone knows this, Tina. So okay. I want to like just make it a point. Okay. So you're going to bring backup controller, backup batteries with a patient that has an LVAD who is currently on batteries, mobile. And you're going to have that equipment with you in the event that something happens. Yes. And the reason is. The reason is because if, right, 
if something catastrophic happens to the patient, the LVAD shuts off and they're truly dependent on it, you have about five minutes to fix that situation. That's probably generous before it's going to clot. And then if you manage to turn it back on, you know, throw a massive clot into their circulatory system. And so time at that moment is of the essence. Like you need to fix the problem when you identify the problem, not when a whole bunch of people run around like chicken with no heads and find you with the patient with the problem. You or need have to, to go run back to the room. Right, or sprint. Go get, yeah. right, sprint, right? Sprint back to the room, sprint back to you. Make sure you have the right room number in your brain in that moment. Yeah. It's too much stress. Yeah. And yeah. Li a likely worse catastrophic event will happen after. Yeah, and also we expect the patients to do long-term, so they need to get in the habit of it. So mm -hmm. I just always tell, I mean, you need to remember because you need to teach the patient so that they have the stuff if something ever happens to them. It should become habit at that point, right. part of their routine. Totally. You're leaving your room, you're leaving your house. What do you have with you right now? Yeah, And you should be asking that question as a therapist mm -hmm. as part of your education. Yeah. You can blame it on the patient that they forgot. <laughs> but first, but at the end of the day, you better remember that it's right. your responsibility. At the you end can of the day. you can wait until that toe hits the doorway, and then you better be yes. reminded at that. And point. then you better be like, "Are we forgetting anything?" And then That's you the better word. assess. Yep. That, okay, I have one more question in regards to LVADs because I feel like this has been controvers controversial. Um, your patient codes. Yeah. Okay. You have a code. LVAD might have shut down. Mm -hmm. First rule of thumb is changing out the motor, changing out the controller. Can you or should you do chest compressions on this patient? So we Same did not. For, we did not for a number of years, but yep. we have since then made a okay. policy where yes, they would do chest compressions as a last resort. Okay. Um, if nothing else. I guess it might keep some blood flowing through the LVAD if you thought there was a way that you could get back and do something right. So maybe blood doesn't clot because you're compressing their chest. Compressing. But what's, I mean, you might not have the answer to that. Either way. Right. But, and I think that's the key, right? It's the last resort. It's the last resort. Absolutely. It, it is yeah. not the first thing that you would do for sure. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. So your patients, I would, I would say are LVAD trained versus mm -hmm. LVAD aware. Cause that's a term that I've heard in uh, recent years too. Okay. Yeah. I would say they're trained. Yes. I agree. Yeah. Um, I have a question for you cause I actually don't know the answer. I've actually been meaning to look this up for a bit. Okay. The total heart, is it still around? That uh, We haven't put one in for quite a while. I don't I, know um, what happened because there was a minute in time where, um, they were always 70 cc's right and so there was yep. always a patient like front to back chest wall like space dimension yep. that they needed to have right and then they made a 50 cc one and i thought that would be the moment where we would start putting more of them i'm not sure um i think that right there was always like super antiquated technology and then they yes. kind of updated that a little bit they did the blue giant but What'd the you call giant it? thing, yeah, that was a blue, big device, as we used to call it. Yeah, big blue, um, big blue. I don't know. Okay, we. I don't think we have done a training since 2019. That I was Syncardia, right? Was that the company? Syncardia, yeah. yeah. Totally. I, I think it was right when we were leaving Michigan that there was talk that they were going out of business. But I was always so surprised because there's a lot of benefits to the total heart that 
technically were better or less risky than the LVAD. Yeah. Right. It's easier to control because you don't have to give all the cardiac meds because you took out their ventricles. So that is easier to control. But I do think that a lot of trouble, like diuresing them and keeping their mm. fluid status such that the, you know, the, the ventricles, whatever yep. you want to call it, the total artificial heart was filling partially, but Perfectly. not completely. And you would be able to have some flexibility if they got up and moved, but also there's a bed problem too, right? Most thoracic ICUs. And we, I, I don't, I don't know if we sent more than one person home. I remember. I was going to say, I have one in my mind. Right. That went with a freedom driver. I saw him in Chipotle one day. I was like, I hear it. There is a total heart. It's somewhere here. I I feel it in my Mm -hmm. body. Right. Yeah. But yeah, they were there for a long time, weren't they? That was the problem is that a lot of people could not be weaned to the parameters that had to be set to use the freedom driver to send the patients home. And so because of that, then you have a patient sitting in a bed and then there's, you know, 20 other patients that don't have surgery because of that. And I don't know if that's part of it or if it was literally just the company, but some combination of those things. I just think there wasn't enough. And I don't know if it was, you know, you feel like computers are smart enough now to like figure out all the things. So more of that could have been adjustable, but it's a fixed plastic ventricle and it does not work the same way as a fluid heart does, even if the fluid heart is old and doesn't work very well. Um, So there's a lot of complicating factors in that, but I don't know. I I truly don't know. I just know that. I was curious. We haven't put one in, so we haven't done training in four, five years now. Okay. That was actually something on my list to look at. I'm like, I wonder if this is still going on. Because yeah. it's not here. It's not here in the Midwest or okay. more yeah. more in the middle than where Michigan is. Because I know we yeah. we like to call Michigan the Midwest. I think that's a little... <laughs> it's a little, little. <laughs> a little east, but whatever. We can yes. call it the Midwest. It's fine. <laughs> Close enough. From yeah. a New Yorker, I'm like, yeah, sure, that works. Right. Yeah. All right. So that kind of leads me into more about culture in the hospital, right? So you Mm -hmm. have PTs Uh doing battery changes, learning how to do controller changes on LVADs. You had PTs um, taking your LVAD patients out into the community. First of all, I just want to say how amazing that is and how that just makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Such a high level device that you have to deal with and live with. Let's put them in that environment. So I think that's just phenomenal. But from a university perspective, the one thing I loved about U of M was the culture of PT outside of the PT department. Okay. It was strong, right? Like people look to PTs to make decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, they expect you to be a part of the plan and decision making. Mm-hmm. That's a huge thing. Yeah. So do you have any insight into how or why Well, that is the way it is? I mean, I would say that comes from Peggy, right? Because Peggy was a force to be reckoned with since the beginning of time. She was also very well educated um, and very deliberate about the choices that she made. So she was all about the data. She would always be tracking the number of consults we had. She would always be looking for where's the sweet spot, right? How many consults should you have on your list to be most efficient? You don't want the exact same number of people you're trying to see because some of them are going to be not available. Right. But also like 40 is way too many. So like, how do you hit the sweet spot? And I think she would continually chip away at that message. So from the beginning, I think that's how we continued to grow is because we, we, we did not accept the consult service role. Right. We're not, I just feel like 
we're like a Ferrari or pick a fancy car. Like and you it. can Let's turn your Ferrari. Ferrari into an 85 or 72 when we're Pintos or not, but you can turn <laughs> it into a Pinto. And all you have to do to do that is tell us we have to see 14 patients a day, because then I'm going to use, I don't know, 1% of the things I know on a daily basis. And the other 99% of things that I bring to the table, which I would argue are maybe the things which are most important to our patients are no longer going to be part of the conversation because I have to get the hell out of your room and go to this other room down the hallway right. and throw another patient in the chair and make a recommendation without like having actually ever assessed anything. And I definitely haven't treated anything. And I also haven't probably educated about anything. And I don't know, do you even know your patient at all? Like, have you, have you assessed anything about where that patient is in life? Like maybe you could say something that might be meaningful to them, but you're not going to know because you have to get out. So I don't know. And I'm, that was a rant and I'm real. Oh, sorry. I'm so excited. Oh. We just hit Tina's hot button right there. So well, it going. really, really pisses me off because it's so stupid. But does, does the university, I don't know. I'd be very interested if you ask globally how many people like truly understand why we're there. I do think that they understand, you know, the things like, so, you know, we did the study that says patients coming back basically almost three times as frequently if you don't follow our discharge recommendations when we make them. Right. And that I think kind of gets yes. people thinking because there's a length of stay problem, right? There's a, there's a readmission to the hospital problem. And if you don't set the patient up for success, which we're very good at when given enough time, um, then the patient's going to be there with you again. And it's not going to be fun for them or you, right? Because now your ED is going to be full of other patients. And so I think there's a huge point though, right? Because sometimes you just need to maybe three days to get yeah. there versus like two or weeks. Need just enough time to show up a second time right. and like help them with some things, like right. problem solve some stuff with them for home, like make some suggestions about how they could be safer or how they could be more independent or how if they exercise with some sort of regularity, they might be living a very different life. Right. Um, there's so many things that we bring to the table. So I do think that there is an awareness of those things. I think we still have many light years to go for them to like really well understand what it is that we do because we do, you know, I'm presently sitting on like a mobility initiative for the hospital I saw and that you in get your to email. the people, right? You get to like the people who are excited about stuff, but like, there's still people who say do less with more. Well, I don't know if you look at PT research, more PT, leads to a lot, you know, shorter length of stay, then you have a bed, then you make more money. Right. So, you know, but you have to let the PT happen, right? You have to actually invest a little bit of money to see that happen. But I, I've been really thinking recently about how many things could you say to hospital leadership at your hospital that said, hey, if you did more of this, your length of stay would be half a day shorter or a day shorter. Think about the amount of money you would then save that you would then make because a different patient would be in that bed and compare that to how much you're paying us, right? I 100% of the time, that's a win for you. 100% of the time. But like, Yeah. And everybody so needs mobility. So that's a whole other thing that I can right. go down the thing. But 
I, I think we just keep showing up and we just keep chipping away at the things, right? And we just keep saying things, you don't have to agree with me. I don't know how many times I've been told like, you have to do less with more. Like, okay, I'm going to keep looking at inefficiencies in our system and I'm going to keep trying to do all the things, but I'm going to need you to look at the fact that more PT equals faster patient turnover equals less readmissions to the hospital equals all of those things. So yes, I can try to do that, but you have to understand what your investment in this case means to this institution big picture. And do I feel like I have done that? I am trying and I will keep trying because I'm a very stubborn human. But why we love you, Tina Fields. Yeah, but there's a lot of room to grow. And I think at probably every hospital in America from that perspective. Absolutely. But I think that's a good point. It's it's twofold right there, right? Mm -hmm. So one is decreasing length of stay. At the end Mm -hmm. of the day, that is always the goal, right? They kind of run it like a hospital system. If you get a personnel, you can fill the next bed. But you want to do that in an appropriate amount of time where the patient's actually ready to leave mm-hmm. and has had PT and DC recs and all of the things and exercise and balance assessments and actually maybe worked on some balance right? and simulate right. the home environment. right? But the big piece that people maybe not realize and has always been my question as to are we talking to leadership about this is the readmission. Mm-hmm. Because if you have readmission, you actually lose more money than right. say one right. more day in the right. hospital. Right. Because if they're right. coming so back then, for the same thing, yeah, then you have a problem because right. you might as well have just kept them there. Yeah. Exactly. And I and I think it is being able to speak to those things. Like I yeah. There there's a lot of evidence out there about those things, but and who cares if they want to hear about it or not? <laughs> Imagine if there was like some other thing that you could give to a patient that would cut their length of stay in half. Would anybody be arguing with you? About, not Absolutely not. But in, by half a day, I'm sorry. Would anybody be arguing with you about it ever? They would not. They would just be insane. But like, this is a thing because they see us as a cost. It, it, you know, it, you have to shift the thinking and that has to be like just a consistent conversation and leadership that believes in you. Right. And leadership that's willing to sit at a table that you're not at and say, Hey, there might be something to this. There might be something to this idea. I saw this research article and I didn't have time to read it, but if I just like read the abstract, it seems like I just read the title. Right. You don't have to go, you don't have to dig too far down in there. To kind of get you don't point. need to read the methodology to see the outcome in that title. You can if you want to. <laughs> like you don't need to. Okay, I, I would recommend it, but whatever. Um, yeah. When was that article published, Tina? Oh wow, you'd have to like it was, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to hook it in the show. We'll notes. find Make it. Sure we attach is, this? Yeah, huh? we're gonna attach it to the show notes. It's, it, I think I'm sec- maybe second author on it. It's Beth Smith. It was definitely like late 2000s, I think. I kind of all blurs together if I'm being yeah. honest. So I mean, we'll the last three it. years is kind of like what, yeah. what year is it? Right. We, but we can find it. We we yeah. looked at we looked at a week of time people who were discharged in all four seasons for a year, and then we looked at all of our PT patients, and then that's what happened. And our hospital did not really want to publish that result because I think <laughs> they were like, it "Doesn't really make us look very good." And I'm like, "Well, I don't know if that's exactly why." We did. You this. Shouldn't, but I think you yeah. need to then look at the. But the, the idea is it's out there. 
And right. so if that helps, but we were just looking to be like, hey, we believe in ourselves. So let's prove that statistically it actually does make a difference. And it did. So I don't know. We like to talk about it anyways. I think you should. I think yeah. it's powerful, right? And it's yeah. giving the PT department, the PT profession empowerment, just like right. you said at the start of this. Right. Okay. So that moves us right into my next big piece, which is scope of practice. Practicing okay. at the top of your profession, practicing at the top of your scope, doing everything within your scope of practice in this setting. Mm -hmm. I know you feel strongly about this. I do. Um, I mean, part of this is, so I don't know that all institutions have written their policies in a way that allow you to do that. And please don't do anything that I say right now, if it's out of scope of practice at your institution, but correct. I know for me having practice on the West coast and then having practice on the Midwest, you know, as on the West Coast, I wasn't allowed to suction my patients, right? I had to do all my things and then wait for our teeth for 20 minutes to show up and suction them while I watch them gag and feel horrible, right? Not and you can't very, do anything else in that moment. Right. I can't do anything else. I can't help them in any other way. And also, why are you going to get up with me again if you know you're going to have 20 minutes where you basically think you're dying because I can't suction you? Um, so all of the orders at Michigan are written so we can titrate oxygen. We do a lot of education about that, right? Yep. Cranking up everybody's oxygen is also not the answer, but sometimes it's appropriate to allow people to do the things and get stronger. Sometimes it's not, and you need to know right. what the difference is, but you know, we can suction patients. It is a competency. We discussed that few 20 minutes ago or so, but it's not a thing that we take lightly, right? Yeah, we do absolutely. education, we practice on a dummy, and then we practice with a person who's good at it on humans before we let you practice by yourself. Correct. But we do do that because why? Because we're probably going to be the ones that are going to make all the things move while we're there, if we're doing Correct. it right. So we do do that. Um, you know, we will check in obviously with nursing, but we also, I think, have a voice at the table. We're not just going to accept like not today. Um, we need to have a conversation about why and about the risk or the benefits for the patient and about all the things that we bring to the table, right? That's part of nursing understanding our role as well. Yep. So how do you get to a point where as a PT, you feel confident that you can make the situation that's happening in the room better? Because if you believe that, you're going to be able to convince other people that that's actually true. Um, and then the other people, mostly nursing, is going to be like, actually, last time Tina came by and we had this conversation and she convinced me to let her go in there, things got better for my patient. And then the next time it's easier. Right. But I, what might that look like, Tina? Let, let me, let's talk about it. We have a patient who maybe in a certain situation that nursing might say, you know what, today's, today's not the day, mm -hmm. right? And in some situations, people might turn around and say, okay, nursing said, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. But what might you be thinking in that moment? And like, what kinds of things could you do besides like, let's say mo mobilizing is off the table. Yeah. Are there things well, that we can do as a PT yeah. in that situation? I mean, I think... I've talked a lot about that with Rachel Craig, obviously. So Rachel's been working at the university for, she always jokes that she came at the house, but she's <laughs> been there over 20 years. She's super invested specifically in pulmonary things. And I think sometimes um, 
you know, we've had a lot of conversations along the way about, hey, the patient's already breathing like, you know, 30 times a minute. So obviously everything I'm going to do is make, make that worse. Well, not necessarily, right? Can you go and say to the patient, hey, we're not going to get up, right? We're not going to do anything crazy, but let's see if I can put you in a position where mechanically you have a breathing advantage and I can make this less stressful for you, right? So can I, would you trust me? Maybe that takes 10 minutes of chatting with the patient. You're very chill. They're trying to recover. You're just saying, I have a belief in my abilities as a PT to help you with this. So then if you can convince them and you can try to position them better so their diaphragm has an advantage, so their abdominal content is not sitting on their diaphragm, whatever it needs to be, can you put them in a, in a position where it's easier for them? And then, you know what you have? You have a patient for life. Like that patient's not going to say no to you when you show up next time. You're going to say, hey, how are you? Like, did it help? Did I do something for you that changed that? It doesn't mean you can fix everything, right? right. But it means that you went and you tried. Absolutely. And I think more often than we give ourselves credit for, we could make a difference. Totally. And even just teaching strategies on how to help with that shortness of breath or whatever the issue is, if right. they are really um, junky in the lungs, like there are things you can do while that patient is in bed outside right. of anything else. I don't need to, I don't need to like go. I mean, we're not doing jumping jacks, people. I just want to <laughs> have a conversation with your patient and see like, Hey, what's going on. Right. And make that relationship, right? You just said you have a patient for life. You've made a relationship with that person. That person now trusts you in a very inopportune time in their life, in a very scary place in their life. And you can literally make a difference. Yeah. Cause you're inside the circle now, right? Next time you come, they're going to be like, I don't know, but she gets me. So it's going to be okay. And I'm going to do whatever she thinks is going to be a good idea for me because now I trust her. Right. And now we are on a team together, right? And right. I'm here to help you have a better you. So, you know, do you believe that? After that, I think they usually do. And, the, and then everything else is easier. But absolutely. You have to like, as a PT, you have to believe in your skill set in that moment. And also be okay to take the time to mm -hmm. build the trust, mm -hmm. right? Because I just mm -hmm. met you, Tina. I don't yeah. know who you are. I don't know what your intentions are with me. Do you see the shape that I'm in? Mm -hmm. I'm right. Scared. And you see PT and they might've met us before, which is sometimes good and sometimes not so good because they get they have a up something crazy and you're just like, oh Lord, okay. Let's start or, over again. Or other people may have, have warned them about us, right? I've, right. I've heard that they term, like, oh, they warned me PT's coming, or we use words like pain and torture. And I right. literally, makes it makes me cringe. for pain and torture? No. What no, is wrong? I'm here to help you. Of right. anyone here, I likely right. can make this better. Right. right. And I think that's important, right? Because words matter, how we say things matter, how we show up for ourselves matter. Like the things that we say to other interdisciplinary team, how, what we say to our patients, how we carry ourselves and actually have those conversations right. so that you yeah. make that relationship. Okay, you said something before. You said, yeah, I wanna come back for it because it's a hot topic. I said, oh Lord, what did I say? Hot topic, just put the person in the chair. Oh, yeah. There is such a terrible stereotype. I feel very strongly about this. Yeah. 
just putting a patient in a chair, just walking the patient, take the patient for a walk, take the patient for a walk is one of yeah. those terms that gives me a little twitch. Yeah, no, for so sure. How, tell me how we can change the script. Yeah. And I think we've already done some of that. So yeah, I just want to really hammer home that point because it is a stereotype that exists. Mm -hmm. I hear it often. Yeah. So how do we change that? Well, and, and let me say, if you're in an institution where you have to see 12 patients a day and otherwise you're going to be unemployed, not be able to feed your family, please do exactly what you need to do to get through it. And I support you and I understand that not everybody on this planet has the luxury of practicing differently. So I like to acknowledge at this moment in time that I do understand that there are places where people have no choice and, and it is what it is. And yeah. And, and, and that is a real thing. So, but, and sometimes that's all your patient can do. And then that is also right. right. There are so many things I don't know, but it, so as part of this mobility thing that I'm working on right now, I have been talking a lot with nursing about kind of how I see therapy role and nursing role and maybe the whole health team role fitting yeah. together, right? So Absolutely. there's the patient gets better and their function gets better and we should just be utilizing their function and everything's going to work itself out. And then you probably, you really don't need to consult me. I'm not going to do anything else, Right where you need to consult me is when a patient gets stuck, right? right? And they're not making progress back to whatever. I see everyone else's role as utilizing the function that the patient has at this moment in time. Yes. So if as a group of humans, if the patient was able to get to the chair and get to the bathroom in the room and every time they needed to get up, we would be present. Maybe they need a little bit of help in a walker, but we would make sure that that happened. And we didn't throw one of those godforsaken freaking catheters in there and throw them in the bed and leave them there and be like, just pee yourself. It's fine. It is definitely not fine. It's also right. not helping the patient in any way mm -hmm. or form. So as a group of humans, everybody needs to be utilizing the mobility the patient has. My job right. is to make that better. I'm, I am helping you find a pathway back to where you're supposed to be at. And I need to do that by providing all the things. I need to figure out the balance issues. I need to figure out the strength issues. I need to figure out the range of motion things. I need to help you control your pain. I need to educate you about all the things that you need to know to make it to the other side of that pathway. And so if we do that, as a group of people, if we can get behind patients in that way, then patients are going to have completely different outcomes than they do right now. Absolutely. But we have it. There, I mean, there's, it, there's, so a, there's a number of studies out that say even a healthy patient who's independent with walking in a 24 hour day, I think it's, I might be, don't hold me to the step, but I think it's like 22 hours of the day yeah. they're in the bed, even if they're independent. I'm sure it's higher than that. I think it's actually closer to 23 plus hours of the day they're so, in. And there bed. you go. So even a healthy, let's not say healthy, because if they're in the hospital, they're there for a reason, but let's say independent person comes yeah. in independent, they should family. leave. Yeah. They should leave independent. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. And somebody should have like discussed with them the importance of that happening, because right. if you don't, they're going to be like, well, I'm sick. So I'll just be in right. this bed until someone tells me six days later that I should get up. And then I'm going to struggle and I'm going to right. struggle for a while in a way that I didn't need to, because right. I could have just did the thing 
and I could have kept my strength this whole time. But instead, I stayed in the bed and it didn't do the thing. And now I have all sort of issues and I'm not going to be able to do all the stuff at home. And I'm going to think that's because I was sick. No, that's because you did. Because you were in the bed. (laughs) Yeah. And, And I don't think we're doing nearly a good enough job about informing the whole like movement is medicine. That's a real thing. It is part of your care that you move. It's also maybe more importantly, how we know that we fix the things for you. Because if you just stay into the bed and then we stand you up and it doesn't go so well, or even if you can move, we don't know if we adjusted your meds properly, if we have you sorted out from the thing. Because you look great laying down. Yeah, you look like a million dollars sitting in that chair. You look medically appropriate at this point. But but you probably have to do a bit more things at home. I Absolutely. don't see who's going to show up at your house 24 hours a day and be like, oh, yeah, I did, I did all your things for you. Just be in the chair. It's just not how it works. No. And we have to figure that out because we're not being fair to our patients. And we're not, I mean, are you trying to survive? Or, right, is that the goal? Right. And just however you happen to, whatever you've lost, you're just, you survive. So we're going to call that a win because I don't think that's a win. No, not long because it's going to lead to other issues and readmission and other health conditions long-term, including depression and myopathy that we know happens post hospital stay. But I think that was an important note, right? Sometimes all the patient can do in a level, maybe where they're in the ICU is get to the chair. And that is a big deal. Yeah. And it's important for sure. Right. Because if not, you're going to get all your blood pressure changes and you're going to have all your issues when you decide to do it. And so if it's all they can do, fine. And again, if it's all you're allowed to do, then I support you. But if you have the opportunity, I think there's, again, you know, you can be the Pinto or you can be the Ferrari. You have choices in life. Right. And, and, but not every institution is going to support you to be all that you can be. And I think that's a, a real thing right now. And everybody's pushing for all these things is not giving us the time to do our job. I'm going to need you to say that one again. You can be the, you can be the Pinto or you can be the Ferrari. I'm just telling you, but not every institution, not every institution let you do that. Yeah. Correct. And if you have the option to go look for one that will, I would support you go do that. I think you'd have a lot more life satisfaction, but absolutely, the people in the hospital that don't let you do that are probably depending on you to come and help them into the chair. And, you know, if that's where you're at, I hope someone's there fighting for you to change that because that's that beautiful. Really sucks. It does. It totally does. And I think it's important to realize that you need to maximize what that patient can do in that moment in time. And if that means they can do high level activity and maintain all of their independence, then you do higher level activity. Yeah. And if it's as little as positioning someone in the bed, then you position that person in the bed to make a difference. But that range should exist. Right. And, and you have all those skills. And if you don't have them, come find a place where they're going to teach them to you and help you figure them out. Because Well, that's a perfect segue, Tina Fields. So, mm-hmm. Tina, you guys recently have a residency program that's accredited. How many years are you accredited now? So we, we're coming up on reaccreditation. So we're five years wow, in. Already? Coming in May. Yeah, I know. It, it's because of COVID. It ate up a lot of years in there. So um, 
we did not have a resident during the, the institution shut it down during COVID, which is probably very reasonable. I think, yeah. I think that maybe surviving for a while in there was all that any of us mm -hmm. really had. Right. So it's hard to bring all the things you need to bring to be there for your resident. If you're in survival 100%. mode, right. but we're back and we're very blessed this year to have a resident again. Yes. Um, and uh, they're coming for reaccreditation in May. Um, so hopefully then we'll have another five years of residents in a row and barring another global pandemic, we'll be <laughs> make it to the other side. But yeah, we, um, do you want to tell me a little bit about the residency? How many people yeah. you take in a year? Do you do tuition versus salary? Just like give a little snippet. Sure. Yeah. So we take one resident a year. Our residents start in September. Normally, though, our, um, through RFPTCAS is the application site. Um, yep. Our application um, period closes in February, usually. I kind of adjust it around CSM, so don't quote me on that part. Because sometimes <laughs> yeah. people are like, oh, well, can I meet some mentors at CSM? Yep, you can do that. Um, but usually sometime in February, and then we interview in March. Um, okay. We've had... We've had residents come straight out of school. Um, we've had residents who have come to us either with experience somewhere else or our very first year we had a resident that we had trained ourselves. Um, she was a couple years in. Um, but yeah, I'm, I mean, we have a lot of mentors with a lot of super diverse interests. Yep. So we have mentors that are really focused in pulmonary and mentors that are really focused in cards. Um, we have mentors that are more about research. We have mentors that are more about clinical practice. We have, right. and so, but we, we have been successful with the new grads. We've been successful with the people who have experience. I think you just like get something different out of it. If you come with a couple years experience, you're going to have different questions because it just is what it is. Right. But we have people move through vascular cards, general care all the way through ICU and then pulmonary general care through ICU. We um, have them go and observe in pediatrics. So you get to see all of those conditions across the spectrum of pediatrics. And then recently, I don't know if you know this, Rachel, but we uh, partnered with the VA. Yes, oh. I have a guess. Outpatient cardiac and pulmonary rehab. Yeah. And they yes. go over there because at Michigan, all of our outpatient stuff is run by exercise phys. I love that. So this is the first year um, that we kind of have reached out, you know, we always said you guys come over, but now we also yeah. send our residents over. So I feel like that's actually been really awesome for them. I love that. I think there's so much benefit in being able to run cardiac mm -hmm. and pulmonary rehab the way yeah. that v the VA does, because the yeah. PTs run that program right. and you can do everything from, right. Yeah. 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 All so of the things that was, from start you know, to finish. We're, we're in a, you know, process improvement at all times, trying to look for it. more opportunities for our residents. But yeah, that was, that was this year is the first year that we've done that, but that was super successful so far. So something that I'm hoping we'll continue doing. So, yeah. so you applications due February ish. Mm -hmm. interview we interview March, March. Mm -hmm. and they start we, in September. Yeah. To give people. And then they time. go through a year until when a full year. So September yeah, to September. Yeah. 
and then I'll get them through. I didn't say thoracic surgery, but you end in thoracic yeah. surgery as a way to kind of like pull it all together, right? Yeah. You got all the lung and pulmonary things, and you got all the cardiac things, you got the surgical things, you got the transplants, you have the LVADs that we talked about here. So there's a lot at the end where you kind of get to take all the things you've learned and put it together. Absolutely. Um, you've built up all that confidence and mm -hmm. didactic knowledge the whole way through. Right. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad that you're partnering, partnering with the VA. I always hope that would happen. Yeah, yeah. No, I That's... think it's been nothing but positive for sure. Yeah. One last question about the residency. Do you do okay. salary? Do you do tuition? Oh, so we do. So if you are a resident in Michigan, um, we schedule you five, eight hour days a week. Four of them are patient care. And one of them is what I call a residency day. So okay. on that day, you take, you pick a couple patient for your direct mentoring and your mentor is with you for those patients. But the rest of the day is yours to like finish up all your residency things for the week any studying, work on your case study research, whatever you need to do. So we pay basically, I, I can't remember, 75 or 80 percent, some percent. I was going to say 75 like, seems to be average. I was curious, you do salary though versus tuition? We do, yeah. So we do salary. So we pay nice. people, um, I, I do not know the number off the top of that's, my head, but 75 to 80 percent of new grad salary to be there for a year. I think uh, that's the exact number VA does too. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, well, that's great. And so you're full for 2023. Yeah. So we have, um, we have a resident. Yes. For, um, this upcoming year. Um, and she actually has been working with us contingent for like nine months. So it's going to be nice. great because she's going to go into it knowing a lot of things. You know, that's if you great. start at the very beginning, you get here, if you start here, you get here. It kind of just depends. Yep. We'll meet you wherever you're at in the process. But, um, I love that. I'm really excited. She's she graduated from Duke, um, and she's super excited about doing the residency program with us. So I'm looking forward to it. And and again, we have a resident now. She moved to Michigan from California to be with us, and she has been absolutely wow. fantastic. She had some experience coming in, um, so we've been very blessed. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. But I would encourage anybody to apply if you really feel like you're. You don't have to be a new grad to do it you're going to yep. learn a ton of things. Um, you just have to be open to the idea that there will be a year of your life that you will spend a lot of time learning things, but it can, I think, dramatically change the way that you go about patient care, um, the therapist that you are, the knowledge base that you have. And I can't say enough positive things about the mentors that we have in Michigan. We have a great absolutely. team of people that are super invested in our program. So absolutely. And our great teachers. Yes. Absolutely. So definitely. Yeah. Very blessed. Well, Tina, I think we went from A to Z right there. Do you have anything that you want to add that we haven't talked about? Um, that is a great question. I mean, I feel very blessed um, to be part of the cardiopulmonary world, um, to have like interacted with the residents from the VA, to still know you, to like, you know, just kind of be a part of this, I feel like, group of people who are really pushing to make PT, especially for this patient population, the best thing that it can be. So um, thank you very much thank for you. this opportunity. It's been fantastic to talk to you. I don't get to see you all the time anymore. I know. We're going to have to make a Michigan trip. I know. It would be absolutely awesome to see you. But yes, thank you so much for this opportunity to kind of talk about all the things. Um, absolutely. It's been a pleasure having you sharing your knowledge. And I 
agree 100%. We need more people pushing our profession forward, pushing PTs forward, pushing the acute care forward, and just right. cardiopulm in general. Yeah, no, for All sure. All right. Well, we're going to call it a wrap. So uh, if you guys have any questions for us, please reach out on Instagram or via text or allthingscardiopalm at gmail.com. And just want to send you off with a good rest of your day and whatever you have to do, get after it.